what I think attracted people to indie media wasn't the tech. It wasn't this fetishization of the open publishing, even though that was cool. It was about telling stories that weren't getting told otherwise. Do all of our photos from protests need to be archived on Facebook? Do, do, do all of our communications and events and calendars need to, you know, uh, only be shared on Facebook? Do, does all of our networking need to occur, you know, in this pavilion that we know uh, is not always working and, in fact, regularly working in very unethical ways. I mean, the, the Internet is whatever we build it to be, you know, and I still firmly believe that and I still hope that that's the case. And so, you know, must we always succumb to, to just what's given to us or can we build something better, something that's not damaging, something that doesn't, you know, require surveillance to operate, that, that it doesn't profile us, something that isn't reinforcing stereotypes or monetizing our attention and and producing boredom and then exploiting that boredom. Like, you know, these things are all very unhealthy. And um, and what if we could create a networked world that was at least a little bit more in our interest or, or a, a moment of respite from, from these corporatized places? Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. I'm one of your hosts and producers. And today we're bringing an encore presentation of a recent interview that we conducted back in October of this year, 2019, with journalist April Glazer. And the reason we're bringing it to you today here at the beginning of December is in recognition of the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the indie media movement uh, which started at the so-called Battle of Seattle, the, the protests against the WTO ministerial meetings that happened in Seattle, Washington, beginning November 30th of 1999. And at that point, uh, the city of Seattle and a group like the World Trade Organization uh, experienced protests the likes of which had, had really not been seen at this level of organization uh, in the United States, uh, arguably in the previous 20 years, possibly ever. And one of the things that happened there was the creation of an independent media center whose whole goal was to allow citizen journalists on the streets – to be able to report what they were seeing and experiencing at the protests, uh, experiencing police violence, and really being able to report firsthand at a time in which the Internet was just beginning to burgeon as a, a public medium, uh, something which everyday life, it would be part of everyday life, and uh, but before there was social media, before there was a Twitter, before there was a Facebook, before there was a YouTube, uh, before we had smartphones and the ability to instantaneously stream video or audio uh, from just about anywhere. And so the idea is that folks armed with with camcorders and audio recorders and early digital cameras could come back and go to a, a center and upload 
images, upload sound, upload video, uh, upload their thoughts in terms of text to a website which could publish it instantaneously at a time when relatively few people have access to online publishing tools. And even the idea of a weblog was very, very fresh and not nearly as knit in uh, to the sort of structure of the internet as it is now. And the folks who came together in the streets included labor unions, included social justice organizations. Um, it included folks from all walks who were there to protest uh, the WTO is essentially an undemocratic institution, an institution in which uh, major trade deals are made behind closed doors without the input of the public and with very little uh, public view into what is actually going on, but yet with with uh, decisions that would affect the lives of millions of people from agricultural workers to indigenous peoples to uh, factory workers and unionists uh, to just about anyone really who's affected by an economy in the world. As part of that, radio was knit in and very important uh, Part of the uh, structure there were folks who came to do unlicensed radio, uh, who were part of the micropower radio movement in the United States at that time, who were pressing the FCC through direct action to create and license low-power FM radio, which would actually come into existence the very next year, in the year 2000, and we'll soon be celebrating that 20th anniversary. And so this all came together um, to really radically change how we think about journalism, how we think about community media. And it really, really represents a time in which uh, many different community media platforms also were coming together from licensed community radio to low uh, to the micro power radio movement uh, to public access television, independent filmmakers and and it really was, I think, an education for a lot of folks, um, including myself, uh, in what was possible. I was not there in Seattle on November 30th. I was just aware that this was going to happen while working myself in community radio in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, at radio station WEFT, where we aired uh, lots of programming that covered uh, the protests there, including shows like Democracy Now! and Free Speech Radio News. Um, which which aired there on our airways. So we want to bring back this interview that we did with April Glaser because she wrote an article called Another Network is Possible this past August, August of 2019, in Logic Magazine, in which she's reflecting upon how a different internet, a different network really was possible uh, where social media such as it is, a media structured around sharing uh, could be different than the strictly profit-driven types of social media, I think exemplified probably by Facebook in this day and age, how something else was conceived before a Twitter, before a Facebook, before a YouTube, and and sort of gives us an opportunity and an opening to discuss uh, sort of the lasting legacy of these ideas that continue on in internet media and in community media of all sorts. So now we'll go and listen to this interview with April Glaser. We're 
We're joined on the line by April Glazer, journalist at Slate covering technology and author of the article, Another Network is Possible, which is published in the August edition of Logic Magazine. April, thanks for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Thanks for having me. April, you wrote about indie media in the article, Another Network is Possible. Uh, why, did you, why did you want to write this article? Uh, well, first of all, it's the 20th anniversary of indie media, and also because indie media is, or was, I mean, it still exists, but it's just an example of this incredible way that the web can be organized and the way that platforms can be built by and for the people that use them that's outside of the kind of corporatized uh, internet that uh, we're all kind of like trapped in the, the we're all kind of trapped in today. Um, and by that, I mean the platforms, um, the walled gardens like Facebook and, and, and Google and, uh, and, and, and Twitter, these, these companies that kind of um, lasso most of our attention and our activity online. Uh, you know, in the late 90s and, and early aughts, people were, were building their own platforms and, and one that had a particular, you know, political agenda. And I thought it was a, a history worth unpacking as, as we uh, think about what the future could look like. And for folks who are never exposed to indie media, for maybe, you know, heard the name thrown around but never had an opportunity to really see any of it in action, can you briefly encapsulate, when you say indie media, what specifically are you talking about? It's A-I-N-D-Y-M-E-D-I-A. And, you know, I think sometimes it gets conflated with people will say independent media, which is indie, I-N-D-I-E yeah. or media. Indie, indie rock, which is right. just a genre. Exactly. Can, can you help us, uh, for folks who, who were never exposed, can you tell us a little bit more about the specific movement you're talking about? Sure. So uh, indie media is actually a shorthand for independent media center, or it's often just called the indie media movement. And uh, it was a network of websites that uh, were all kind of based locally somewhere. So there was like a Nashville or Tennessee indie media, which is the one that I helped uh, work on early on. There was one in Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia. They were all over the world. There's, uh, you know, Argentina, Throughout Mexico, Canada, throughout Europe, uh, you know, there were hubs in in Africa and throughout South America, and they were kind of local news websites and blogs where people could uh, write a post about what was going on locally or comment about something that was happening internationally and kind of be a grassroots journalist. Um, but this local reporting, these local news hubs, were all linked together in the indie media network. They all kind of. Uh, you know, circled back or linked back to the mothership website. Uh, I think it was indiemedia.net or, or .org. I don't remember what the, the, the ending was. But through that, it was kind of a feed of uh, grassroots political reporting from around the world. And the idea of creating this was that the mainstream media was not covering movements uh, very well and really not getting voices from the grassroots, uh, not collecting voices of those who were, you know, perhaps uh, most in danger by whatever political situation was being reported on and giving a way to elevate those voices uh, because there was a lack of faith that television news that, you know, consolidatedly owned newspapers uh, that, that, you know, uh, just corporate media was not really reporting in, in a way that really reflected the, the needs of the communities that were being harmed. Um, and so this network of independent journalists really tried to provide a voice for that. And this was at a time uh, before a lot of people were using the internet for this type of work. So it really did feel like a, an alternative news website, yeah. a grassroots news website. Yeah. As you mentioned in your article, uh, you know, and we're at the 20 year anniversary of, of Indie Media starting, it tended to um, 
local indie media centers tended to uh, pop up around large political events like the Republican National Convention or in Miami, there was the Free Trade of the Americas, I think, uh, organization meeting in Seattle, of course, the 20th anniversary is because in Seattle, it was there's a large organizing effort surrounding the WTO meeting, the World Trade Organization meeting that was going to be happening in Seattle in 1999. And these these big events, these big political events that were being um, – that there was an organizing effort on the left to oppose these events, that was sort of a lot of the energy behind the founding of these indie media centers. But then they would go on – they would live on beyond these uh, uh, street yeah, battle so moments. Exactly. So they would pop up often to cover a protest because there was a, a knowledge that protests were not covered, uh, you know, giving voice to those who were protesting as well and usually would skew towards those who already had some sort of institutionalized power. And those were the people who were often being protested against. And so protesters kind of started their own website to make sure that their story got told. And, and that's kind of how Indie Media got started. Uh, Indie Media, the first website formed at uh, in 1999 during the World Trade Organization ministerial conference uh, in Seattle, Washington. And uh, and the idea was that, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people were descending on Seattle to protest uh, the WTO meeting uh, because it was seen as a force that would allow for corporations to to supersede uh, national laws to yeah, environmental uh, it, laws and labor laws. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was a there was, you know, labor organizers were there. Farm workers were showing up. Activists were showing up and were really very concerned about, you know, increasing globalized capitalism. Right. And and just that that these these multinational corporations were going to further entrench their power um, and, and act further in their interest and less in the interest of, of, of you know, the, the public or the people that, that live near them or that are hurt uh, by the production of their products, um, you know, particularly looking for lower wages around the world um, with less uh, labor protections and environmental protections, as you mentioned. And so they created a, a, a storefront uh, or like a kind of an indie media center is what it was called with computers and cameras and people coming in and out documenting police violence, uh, documenting the protests. Uh, documenting, uh, you know, minute by minute coverage of, you know, these days long violent protests that weren't getting the same uh, extensive coverage uh, on television. I mean, of course, they were being covered in newspapers and on television, but not from the perspective of those who uh, who who were protesting, who, who had grievances that they were trying to air on the streets. Um, and so uh, a lot of the indie media centers popped up around the anti-globalization movement that was very much one of the most important issues on the left at the time. Yeah. So, yes, in Miami, around uh, the free trade area of America's meeting, uh, an indie media started in 2003, but then also around larger political convergences, like you mentioned, in Philadelphia with the Republican National Convention in 2000. And what we have to underline, even though it's uh, it almost feels a little bit silly, this is 20 years ago prior to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and the other and phones, uh, no one had a, a computer in their hand that could stream to the internet. And so this was really um, the, the first time that the internet was being used to tell these individual stories uh, by, by community journalists. Yeah, one thing that's really incredible about indie media, there are a lot of incredible things, you know, not the least of which being we're talking about a whole network and a platform that was built by and for the people that were using it. Um, but the fact that it yeah, was a non, usable. a nonprofit, it was, there's no, uh, 
There was uh, no no yeah. corporate seed money. There and was often no not even institutionalized or corporatized in any sort of way. Yeah. In fact, it was anti-capitalist. Yes. So <laughs> I, I'm sure more money was lost than made uh, with indie media. I'm positive of that. But yeah. um, and people really invested, um, you know, themselves in this because they were driven by a political motivation to make sure that stories were being told and that you know resistance movements could continue to form with the information that they needed to, to to protest, knowing what's going on in the world politically. But one thing that indie media pioneered one of the first one of the things that it kind of not not necessarily invented but created the first usable most usable version of is uh, open publishing and so one of the things about indie media that was, was really liberatory and really exciting is that anybody could be a journalist anybody could publish and uh, the open publishing software that was built for the indie media website it was launched with the seattle protest um that code base was was then riffed on. It was open uh, source free software uh, and then replicated uh, in every indie media center that was formed thereafter, of which I think there were you know around one hundred and fifty or, or more um, uh, where anybody could 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 post to the to the news feed. And it was probably this was before WordPress. Right. This was before we had really accessible blogging and it was before we had all had handheld phones. So people would film with a camera, go back to their computer yeah. and, and upload it to uh, to the website so it could be shared globally. And I think even that multimedia aspect is really important because from the very beginning, it enabled text, audio, video, and and pictures. That was you know baked in from the very beginning. And and in 1999, uh, you know successfully distributing your audio or video online if you did not have capital, yeah, even your photos, <laughs> even your photos in right. 1999, it was not there was not like a given way to to share that stuff. Yeah, and, no, and, you would have to ask a corporation to host it for you, and then you could perhaps share the link like with Photo Bucket or something like yeah. that. But I don't even think that was around in 1999. Yeah. And and I think also when you say open publishing, you mean you uploaded it to the indie media site, whichever one you uploaded it to. It was published immediately, right? There were no – what from my recollection, I was involved in the, in the movement at that time. Uh, there, was, there was no editor. There was nobody reviewing things. It went there- immediately up on the web. Well, every and so so this actually brings up an important aspect of indie media is is the localism. So every instance of indie media, every indie media center that was set up, whether it was in, you know, Cincinnati, I don't know if there was one there, but like one in Ohio or one in Florida, in Miami, um, had local rules that governed the site. Each one was autonomous, and so some did have a screening process uh, or an editor an editor that would choose the stories that went to the top of the feed, um, or uh, someone that would, uh, you know. Uh, pull out stories that were spam or that were full of hateful content, right. making sure that uh, that that the site wasn't used for abuse. So there was always some level of moderation. But yes, anybody could post and it would be live, and then there was a chance it could be you know uh, ferreted out later for by by an editorial process. But those processes were all autonomous uh, and and were rules that were created by the local entity that was hosting it. And they would get aggregated up to the main indiemedia.org site, so that yes. something that was published. In uh, in London or was published in Barcelona would be we could show up alongside something that came from New York or, or elsewhere. Um, you know, during that time, I was active in in the intermediate site that uh, went up in Urbana, Champaign, Illinois, which is a sort of off the grid place by comparison. I think it seems like it's the home of the University of Illinois, but has a very long tradition of community media, independent media, and. Um, and activist organizing, um, as it, as many college towns in the Midwest do, places like Madison, Wisconsin, um, also Kona Minor, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And 
you know, I actually remember for a time I would was part of the collective that would occasionally uh, have to edit the site. Um, and, you know, when, when people talk about trolling now, right, uh, where, you know, and, and whether it's on, on Twitter or on Facebook or elsewhere, I remember having to deal with it, you know, back then, 15 years ago, where we had persistent uh, people posting, uh, you know, hateful content, uh, menacing content, um, and, and trying to figure out, you know, as we would weigh out as a collective, and we did work as a collective, what what should or should not stay, um, but then also figuring out, you know, because, you know, it seems like their screen names, screen names and where they came from would change by the minute, right? It, it, it's like a, a problem that hasn't gone away. And I think every local collective kind of had to, had to work with through. Yeah. And the localism, I think, allowed the collectives to figure out how to w- fix it. And, and one thing that that's really an interesting corollary now, a conversation we're having now and something that I report on as like a national reporter on the technology industry is that companies like uh, Facebook and YouTube have had a very, very difficult time weeding out the hateful content that um, that that is possible on any site that allows for open publishing like Facebook and, and YouTube does. Um, and, you know, these have been issues since the very, very beginning of this yeah. format of, of, you know, interaction online. But when your hub is local, when it's smaller, when it's not the World Wide Web, I mean, of course, this was the World Wide Web, but, but, you know, it's a small collective is running it. There was more of a level of accountability. And also uh, software engineers who volunteered their time built, uh, you know, tools that allowed for um, like spam filtering tools or mm-hmm. that would look for words that were abusive or hateful and flag the post before it was published for review. And so people have been thinking about these issues that, you know, the large technology companies can't seem to figure out how to how to fix for a very long time and have even built solutions very early on, given not at the scale that we're talking about now. But uh, but these were questions that were happening from the very beginning of, of indie media. Um, and it's interesting to watch these companies kind of uh, flounder about yeah. how to deal with this now because perhaps they weren't thinking about it from the beginning of their platform because they didn't have the same, you know, uh, ethical or, or, or principled reason for forming it and, and therefore – you know, are having to go back now and, and deal with the, the racism that is so embedded in these networks. You know, and, and it's I think it's really important that you bring up that local basis because my recollection from my time at the Urbana-Champaign IMC is that if we ever had somebody who was posting, uh, you know, hateful content or very uh, attacking content and they objected strenuously to being moderated, we invited them to come to our meetings. Mm-hmm. Right. We had actual meetings. Well, we actually had a, a rented space. It eventually became a purchase space uh, in Urbana, Illinois. Yes, because yes, we felt I've been like, there. Yes. <laughs> we felt like, well, th- we could talk this out. So please come and explain to us why this content should be on our site. You know, on, on our the community site, why that should be propagated, as opposed to like it's it's a nameless censor you know who is simply taking things out we, we we tried to personalize it and and that was part of making it as an editorial collective which meant there was no one person who had control oh, we were all coming to some sort of agreement a on lot it. of hard work a lot a of, lot of hard work volunteer will, labor to create to create a halfway decent community but uh um still possibly uh preferable to how it's done these days yeah, and it's like this with any, you know, activist movement, um, you know, whether it's, you know, cop watch initiatives here in the Bay Area, it's always a lot of unpaid mm-hmm. labor. And this was certainly an activist project. I think that's something to really keep in mind with indie media, too, is that like these were volunteers and people were doing this 
because they, it was tactical. There was a purpose for this. Uh, you know, yes, it was journalism. Like, yes, uh, it was reporting. Yes, it was investigations. You know, indie medias would put FOIA requests in. They would try to get documents. They would try to publish things. Houston Indie Media, for example, uh, got FOIA requests from the police there. Um, and when I say FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests, public records requests. But uh, but they were doing this within a, a, a political agenda, which was grounded in, um, you know, community uh, accountability and, um, you know, anti-capitalist values, anti, you know, anti kind of corporate values, uh, anti-racist values, um, that were very, very explicit. Yeah. That's the voice of April Glazer, journalist at Slate covering technology. We're on the line because we're talking about April's article, Another Network is Possible, that was published in Logic Magazine, celebrating, uh, indie media, talking about indie media and how, uh, we're here at the 20, 20- year anniversary of the founding of the first indie media center it was a a movement of independent an independent platform a non-corporate internet where people could share the news uh prior to the facebooks and the twitters and the youtubes that we're currently um all all submerged in and and april you yourself were involved in the movement correct i was and and i want to get back to the political aspect of that why i got involved because you know as a journalist now, there's this idea of this kind of imaginary idea of pure journalism, right? And, and indie media Yeah, the view from nowhere. Yeah, the view from nowhere. And the indie media said, no, 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 there are people who are being oppressed, and we want to make sure that their stories get told because, you know, the the CNNs and the NBCs, the ABCs of the world aren't giving, aren't handing the mic to them, you know? And so we want to be sure that these voices are, are, are going to, to have a platform as well. And that was why I got involved. I wasn't involved because I was like, you know enchanted by the technology of it, although I thought it was cool and it was exciting and like, you know, hackers are cool, but I wasn't a hacker. I'm not a programmer. I was a local activist and a wannabe reporter and uh, had a, a, you know, voice recorder and would go ask people questions at the state capitol and and then go back and and write a post. Um, And for me, it was the state capitol of Tennessee. Uh, Yeah, in Nashville. Um, So, uh, or in the, the, the Capitol building. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, we we were working f- because we were worried about what was going on, whether it was, you know, homophobic bills that were making their way through the legislature um, or, uh, you know, policing that was being increased in public schools, uh, mountaintop removal mining as a way of, you know, getting coal out of East Tennessee, Appalachia, that was decimating, you know, the environment there and, and, and has been a, a huge issue in terms of uh, pollution. You know, we were reporting uh, about our community and because we were concerned about what was happening and these stories weren't being covered. And so, you know, what I think attracted people to indie media wasn't the tech. It wasn't this fetishization of the open publishing, even though that was cool. Yeah. It was uh, about, you know, telling stories that weren't getting told otherwise. Yeah, but yeah. in a way... You know, when we're talking today on Radio Survivor about, you know, we are fetishizing the platform a little bit because oh, I think sure. it's, I think it's, I think it's just very useful here 20 years later. I mean, for one thing, it might be time to sort of reveal that when indie media has, is turning 20 years old and it's not the same, it's not the same website and it's not the same organization that it used to be. There's still a few uh, indie media centers uh, who that still exist and are still being used. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's much more of like a Central American, like South American. Um, that's where the, the 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 actual like reporting work is still happening. But for the most part, it's a it's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an ending in a way. 
uh, here in 2020, in the year 2019, 2020, indie media has sort of, um, we can sort of write the book. We can close the, the book on, on its existence. And so looking backwards at this independent platform and seeing it uh, and comparing it to our current, you know, dominant platforms that are, that are owned by uh, Facebook or Twitter in the, for the most part, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to think about it because, you know, we know that uh, the feeds are not fair. Right. And so like before I was a journalist for about a decade, I, I worked on as an activist at nonprofits and, and, you know, on political campaigns. And I'm very open <laughs> about this because I have to be as a journalist. So it's, I yeah. know it's not the typical route for people that go into journalism because you're supposed to be, you know, neutral or what have you. But it's actually given me a lot of sourcing and it's been a, a, a fantastic uh, career change. I've really enjoyed it. But uh, but I do know, and, and anyone who does movement work today will tell you the, about the centrality of these social networks to every campaign that you launch, you know, and, and, and there's no choice but to use these platforms that are perhaps not working in your interest or perhaps working against your interest. Um, but you have to use them because this is how word gets out. This is how you network. And, and you, you try to use them strategically and instrumentalize them and, and make something go viral but, you know, because of the massive nature of these platforms, you know, you might have an action that goes viral or a campaign that goes viral, but then the next day something else will catch people's attention. And they're not really um, good for the type of, like, sustained movement work often that uh, that, that a campaign needs. Um, and often they're, like, you know, working against you algorithmically or they're, you know, uh, selling targeted ads that are harmful to the communities that you're trying to help, you know, like – you know, it was only last year that Facebook was barred from uh, allowing uh, housing ads to be targeted to people, you know, based on racial identifiers, right? right? Uh, yeah. Because it was considered discriminatory. Um, and so if you're working on housing justice and you're using Facebook to get your movement out there, you know, you know that these platforms aren't necessarily working in your interest. And so I'm really interested in what if there was a, a place where we could do the organizing. Um, and, you know, you can never untether from these platforms. But what if there was a separate place that, you know, wasn't, if you weren't constantly beating against the tide, or, you know, what if there was um, another, another place to go to share that was a, a moment of respite from these platforms that are monetizing against us? I wonder, this might be, uh, this might be way out of left field, but I almost wonder if one of the reasons why 20 years ago indie media was useful and why why in 2019 I feel like just running down the Facebooks and the Twitters is that it was a laptop and desktop uh, publishing platform that we got our information uh, by sitting down and having more of a, um, a, a, a an experience of... Um, you know, a temporary experience of getting some information while sitting at a desk and then getting up from the desk and moving on. And we live in a world now of this, um, you know, the permanent screen in our hand that might just be better suited for, for snacking on media. Yeah, I mean, indie media was a creature of its era, there's no doubt. But if another project was to launch today that, um, you know, was operated by people and movements that, you know, other movements could trust, um, it would look very different than indie media did. Um, but, you yeah. know, we, we use all kinds of platforms that are not corporatized. So I rely on Signal, which is an encrypted, uh, you know, messaging uh, app on the phone across Android and iPhone. 
um, to, to do so much of my reporting. I mean, every day I'm always on signal all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, that's an outpost that's outside of kind of, you know, the corporate, (laughs) the corporate, uh, platforms for communicating. Um, and so I, I, you know, even just a place to, to like do all of our photos from protests need to be archived on Facebook, you know, should they be archived somewhere else first that can be shared. And of course, share on Facebook to do, do all of our communications and events and calendars need to, you know, uh, only be shared on Facebook. Does all of our networking need to occur, you know, in this pavilion that we know, uh, is, 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 is not always working. And in fact, regularly working in very unethical ways. Um, and so, uh, there's a question about what if, what if another internet, I mean, the, the internet is whatever we build it to be. Yeah. You know, and I still firmly believe that, and I still hope that that's the case. And so, you know, must we always uh, succumb to to just what's given to us, or can we build something better, um, something that's not damaging, something that doesn't, uh, you know, require surveillance to operate, that 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 it doesn't profile us because you know the only way to make use of all this data is to profile it. Um, you know, something that isn't reinforcing stereotypes or monetizing our attention and, and producing boredom and then exploiting that boredom. Like, you know, these things are all very unhealthy. And, um, and what if we could create a networked world that, um, that was at least a little bit more in our interest or or a a moment of respite from, from these corporatized places. And I think that it would be useful also because, you know, as, as, as a radio show, as community radio enthusiasts, you know, that, these these platforms, like when I started the radio station with a group of people in Nashville, it was a nexus for our community as the community defined itself, right? And so all of these groups came together with the radio station that would have never probably worked together otherwise. Or if they would, it would have not, it would have taken a lot of work to bring us together and find our shared issues. But, you know, because we shared the radio station, the Cambodian community, the Somali community, the environmentalists, the, you know, uh, interfaith leaders, uh, the homeless advocates, we all were using the same radio station because of that. We were able to do so much solidarity work. And really, uh, yeah. we shared infrastructure, you know, we shared tools. Um, and that and it really strengthens movements when um, when you have common ground like that. April Glazer, I mean, I think you bring up a great point about this non-determination. Like, uh, the internet is not determined yet, right? And, and, and in fact, as you point out, with it's a point we say about radio all the time. Just because commercial radio and the radio system ended up the way it did doesn't mean that it was somehow uh, divinely uh, predicted that way. It wasn't – this isn't it's not the like end. the end result of some kind of social Darwinism or right. Darwinist capitalism. Like we don't, we don't have the best possible radio landscape or best possible media landscape. Exactly. Um, and that you know this is, is true for the internet as it, as it is uh, – as it is for radio. And, you know, you mentioned your work um, with a low power station uh, there. That again was in Nashville, correct? Yes, it was in Nashville, Tennessee, Radio Free Nashville. Radio Free Nashville. And uh, did that go, I'm going to take us in a little bit of a radio direction now. Let's do it. Did that go on the air in the, uh, in, in that first wave of low power FM stations in the early part of the 2000s? Yeah, that's when the license was received, and it went on air in tw- 2005 with the barn raising with Prometheus Radio Project, which is a nonprofit that I eventually ended up working at in Philadelphia, where I moved from Nashville to work with them. Um, but yeah, we were uh, we got our uh, construction permit with that first wave. And was there a connection at all between uh, the in the media center that existed there in Nashville and the LPFM 
either either if not formally, sort of informally because of of the the folks who might have been uh, involved. April Glazer was definitely one note in that connection. <laughs> well, I'm one, one note, here, yes. and and uh, absolutely, it was a completely interconnected. Um, we were media activists in a small, relatively small city. Um, and so there was a, I think there was a briefly an indie media show, but that kind of dissipated into people having their own individual shows. Um, but everybody, you know, was deeply involved in both projects and saw this, uh, both as very much interconnected as, uh, you know, our attempt to have accountable local grassroots journalism that was coming from the communities that it was serving. And was there a community radio station in Nashville before that? Uh, over in the history of Nashville, yes, but at the time, no. There was a college radio station, WRVU, which mm-hmm. has since been uh, very much narrowed. Uh, but it was the Vanderbilt College Radio Station. Yes, and our our colleague uh, Jennifer Waits has written extensively about that. We'll put it in our show notes at RadioSurvivor dot com. Um, but you know, and that was one of those stations that that was a college station formally, but certainly a community station in practice. We've talked about several others over the years. It was um, great. Yeah, I I had a show with friends friends on and off there too. So it was, it was Nashville was a small, it was a community that's like, you know, it was kind of the buckle of the Bible belt in many ways, but also has this amazing civil rights history, this radical organizing history and really no place for, uh, for us to be telling the stories of, of the activism that was very much present in the community. Um, and so we wanted a place to do that. And, and radio made sense because at the time in 2005, not everybody was online. In fact, you know, internet adoption rates were quite low at that point. And so this was the most accessible way. Uh, it probably reached more people in, in many ways than the indie media site did. Um, but, but both were acting very much in concert, and, uh, and the people were involved in both projects. And I know of at least two other uh, low-power FM stations that have pretty formal affiliations with independent media centers. Uh, one is WOOCLP in Troy, New York, mm-hmm. uh, where there was the Media Sanctuary, which still exists. It, it sort of started as an independent media center and, and persisted in its uh in its goals and its instantiation as a local physical place for people to come together around uh issues of of justice nothing like having a building to to go with your website yeah Yeah, it's so so important and and they did exist in some places not every you know not every uh independent media center had a physical instantiation but many did many were were sort of virtual ish yeah, I think the physical, uh, you know, the, you know, DC had a, a physical center which I visited uh, many times around like inauguration, pro, you know, covering inauguration events. Um, there was a physical space in Houston. Um, you know, having this place where people could go and meet um, again, as I mentioned, the radio station that kind of acts as a nexus for the community. Indie media centers did as well. You know, people would come and use the space to hold meetings, to produce documentaries, to use the internet, to yeah. uh, upload audio that would be shared. Uh, you know, with all kinds of radio stations, um, they uh, they were meeting places, and so the media making um, wasn't this thing that was we're all just posting from our individual podiums from our accounts on Facebook or Twitter and, and firing off some missive that might go viral or might not get seen by anybody but uh, but rather the media making was uh, was was there was a togetherness to it, it remi- um, and then it was it was intentional and then it was put out in the world it reminds me of a tweet that I'll have to hunt down and, and give good attribution on the website uh, radiosurvivor.com but it was a tweet from a couple months ago that I think ended up getting retweeted by 
um, AOC and that then it went super viral. But that like the idea that libraries could be open in the evenings so that people could form communities in a physical space outside of uh, the restaurant and bar and private homes in the world. And that that idea that there that that our communities, our local communities deserve another way to um, to get to work together, to meet people, especially in the evenings after work. Um, it sounds like independent media centers, at least when they existed, as well as um, these radio stations, they provide that a little bit. And it's such a it's a missing piece of the of the of our civilization here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I use this verb, this word construction previously, but the centrality of technology to every movement for social justice and political change means that everybody has a need for a website or some sort of media presence. And so the idea of a media center being that central place that, you know, all other nonprofits or movements can maybe like share and co-use actually makes really good sense. And it's a fantastic tool for building solidarity locally um, across issue areas that, uh, that, that, that few other um, kind of technologies would allow for, whether it's that, you know, the, it's just a website in a physical space or a radio station and a website in a physical space, whatever, uh, you know, however that manifests or just a radio station, um, this, is, this is what community media does. Paul, I think I interrupted you. You were listing off... Um low-power FM stations that, that originated in indie media centers. Yeah, and uh, the second is the one I sort of talked about a little bit beforehand very briefly is uh, WRFU, LP, oh. which is in that first wave again, went on the air in about 2004, 2005 at uh, Urbana-Champaign's Independent Media Center. There you go. So now we know of three, and if you out there in the listening audience know of a fourth, fifth, or sixth, please do reach out to us, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We're talking about indie media at the on the you know here we are accidentally at the 20 year anniversary of indie media so we're talking about and 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 just about to be the 20th anniversary of low power fm which yes. uh, those stations started going on the air um in the year 2000 started being licensed at least licenses started going out in the year uh 2000 which will be the 20th anniversary in january That's so one of one of, so sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, you were listening to Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. With me is Paul Reismandel, and we're on the line with journalist uh, April Glazer, who covers technology at Slate Magazine. And we're talking uh, about indie media. April Glazer wrote an article, Another Network is Possible, that was published in Logic Magazine over the summer. And uh, April, you were about to talk. Yeah, so another way to kind of thread the needle between um, – the community or independent radio movement and, and indie media is what happened after Katrina. Um, yeah. And this was something that I wrote about in the article uh, at, in uh, 2005, um, you know, after the, the hurricane and, you know, thousands of people were displaced. Many went to Texas, uh, to Houston to sleep in the Astrodome. Um, and uh, it was a massive amount of chaos. People had a very difficult time finding their families, finding the help they needed, the FEMA forms, you know, knowing where to go to get medical care. And there was a real information deficit there. And the activists in Houston who were involved with the Indie Media Center noticed this information deficit right away. And they immediately applied with Prometheus Radio Project for a series of licenses, emergency licenses to operate uh, low-power FM stations yeah. uh, outside of the Astrodome to provide immediate information uh, to those in the Astrodome. And, and they actually distributed radios inside the facility um, and then started broadcasting. And they had some difficulty getting on because FEMA was giving them our time. But once they got on, they were immediately able 
to uh, get people on the radio and connect families right away and provide, um, you know, much needed material support, information, infrastructure that was lacking there. Um, and they did it in this like very fast on the ground way that like a corporation doesn't really have an incentive to do. But these activists were doing it because it was the right thing to do and it was the skill set that they had and they knew they could do it. You know, it's a fascinating example because there are very few examples of any of such a sort of uh, emergency license of any sort being yeah. being handed out for radio. It really is like yeah. a um, – it deserves its own hour-long documentary. Uh, absolutely. It, it, it's the story that, um, that I've heard repeated <laughs> often, but um, I've never heard what that radio – yeah. sounds like and i would and if i don't know if that's appropriate it might have to, been on the houston imc website though yeah that's true april glazer did you work for prometheus during that moment um no i i was uh ended up coming uh soon after okay. but you know my my friends did i uh was working at that time at radio free nashville but okay. um was very aware of what was going on um because this was very much at the time and, and you all know this and maybe some of your listeners do too but it was a it was a national community of people that were um, media activists and and were really clued in and trying to provide support across the country. And I think you're threading the needle via this example of the emergency low power FMs that went on the air around the Astrodome to help support people who were taking shelter from Katrina. Um, I mean, I think it's it's trenchant because even if folks were not involved in indie media explicitly. It is my perception and my experience of that time that it helped to kind of galvanize media activists yeah. from around the world and, and, and helped to uh, firm up a network that had existed, I think, um, loosely. You know, people generally knew each other if they were working in similar areas from public access television or, or, or documentary work or radio work. But having now uh, a digital network and a, and a, and a semi-formalized kind of interaction between disparate communities around the world uh, built those networks even more strongly. It, was, it, was, it seemed to me it was easier to get to know. If you wanted to find somebody who could get a transmitter out to Houston, out to the Astrodome, it, it was easier there in 2005 in part because of this informal network that had built up around indie media. Would, would you say that's an accurate characterization? Uh, that, that there was just like a, it was easy to connect with people? Yeah, that, that it sort of helped to firm up a sort of global network of media activists and, and you know, around social justice issues, kind of in general, even if folks weren't always explicitly sure. working in indie media. Yeah, and, and it really positioned media as a site in and of itself of political change and engagement. And so people began to identify as media activists, right? So maybe, yeah. you know, they worked on a lot of other issues, but 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 they were media activists. Um, and because media itself was a political problem. Um, and, and, there, and there was a network of support around that, you know, whether it was the sharing of transmitters or transmitter kits or expertise, you know, people flying out around the country to help build stations. But there was a sense that this was a very dire need um, across movements um, that we needed to get this right in order to, to help everyone else. You know, and round about the same time, at least in in the U.S. context in the political scheme, is also a more formal uh, movement around media reform. 
that that went up as well. We had the formation of the organization Free Press yes. uh, around about 2003 with the first National Conference for Media Reform, which happened in Madison, Wisconsin that year. And then there were subsequent conferences in places like St. Louis and Memphis, Tennessee, all around these mid-aughts where it was, it was both a bit more um, – Official, if you will, in that there were, uh, you know, congressional representatives and other people coming from government and more established nonprofits um, and more established sort of lobbying groups, as well as a, a fairly radical fringe of folks coming in from uh, indie media uh, explicitly, low power FM explicitly, and other sorts of grassroots organizing. Um, and, and, and sometimes there was a little bit of even conflict there, but I think it, it's important to have this background that. That this idea that our media system could be different, this idea that our media system isn't serving people well, was yeah. gaining much more, I think, in, in the popular consciousness is coming much more to, to the foreground as well. And I don't know if, April, if you, had, if you participated at all in sort of that more um, formalized official kind of media reform movement at that time. I did quite a bit. I actually, you know, I was young. I was like 18 when I first testified to the FCC on this. I was doing a lot of this when I was a, a teenager. I left high school early. Um, and uh, and I worked on the hearings around media ownership uh, that were happening at the FCC. And of course, uh, not of course, but for those who don't know, Prometheus Radio Project, the nonprofit that really helped to, to build and substantiate the low power FM movement at that time, had sued the FCC for consolidating uh, or for allowing uh, greater consolidation. And it's still in court today. And it's, it's still, still in court in today. today. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, uh, that's and that, that's an ongoing case. There's now a second version of it. But but regardless, uh, there was a, a movement at the time to uh, to make sure that, that uh, local media did have ownership limits, that one company couldn't own you know, four radio stations, two television stations, and a newspaper in a single market. And, you know, this is kind of a criticism or a, a, a critique of power that I think is not as prominent uh, in leftist circles today. The idea that um, that uh, consolidated media ownership is bad. I think people kind of gave up on it because the consolidation has been somewhat runaway. Um, you know, there still are laws and limits. And, and in fact, there was uh, a ruling from the federal court um, against FCC Chairman Pai's attempt to further consolidate radio, television, and newspaper ownership. Since doing so, the court ruled would less lead to less diverse ownership by women and people of color. Um, but uh, but at the time, there was a, a huge movement to to, to stop um, uh, lifting ownership limits, um, and this came out of the 1996 Telecommunications Act which allowed for greater consolidation of ownership of radio across the country. Clear Channel went from owning a handful of radio stations to about 1,200 radio stations in, I think, less than two years. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, there was a, a, a very much an understanding and a criticism of, of uh, media as a, as a political issue. That's the voice of April Glazer, journalist at Slate covering technology. And we're talking about uh, media ownership at this stage because we're making the case that an indie media movement that started in 1999, uh, which helped lead to part of a media justice movement to create low-power FM radio, more community radio in the in the margins of uh, mostly cities, but also everywhere across the United States, uh, building more radio stations so more people uh, could could broadcast their um, their ideas. I mean, free gosh, community more community radio and then or just yeah and creating that critique that would kind of pave the way for people to get involved in that movement i think really solidifying this as a 
something that people would want to engage in and kind of creating that framing um, as a problem. Yeah, and leading to, yeah, the media ownership and consolidation. I actually just wanted to rewind a little bit and say that when that legendary story now of the Katrina refugees in Houston being served by having a emergency low power FM radio station there at the Astrodome and the distribution of uh, little cheap FM radios so that they could all receive information uh, for me in 2005, if that's when that took place. Um, I was working at a radio station at that time and it still took that story to sort of open my eyes, open my ears to the idea that radio wasn't um, becoming obsolete that it still really had a purpose in this in our civilization, a communication purpose that uh, we didn't need to sort of uh, run beyond, that there was a reason to, to still focus on, on radio and how it serves communities, how it serves people. There were a few instances around uh, the country at that time that, that really made it clear that um, radio and having, you know, locally community-run um, uh, broadcasting outposts were incredibly important for community safety. One was, for example, in LPFM in Jupiter, Florida, that was providing up-to-the-minute updates on where that hurricane was moving and where people could go to find shelter um, and and safety needs. That uh, that the closest you know corporate radio station serving that community uh, was was very far away, miles and miles away, and was not giving that local coverage. That that you know is really life saving. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, just, just having something that's accountable locally, um, and that can tell those stories and, and, and give that on the ground reporting in places that, um, that are perhaps, you know, consolidated into large markets, um, otherwise by, uh, by corporate media. And, and yeah, the, the Houston example is also a great, uh, showing of, um, of, these internet media activists weren't, it wasn't just about the internet. It was about the media. It was about serving the information needs of the community. Yeah. April Glazer, today you are a professional journalist. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I do not, that's not an accusation. <laughs> no, I know. It's just funny. I am a professional journalist. Very I mean, much so. and, and so I wonder, you know, in, in what way is your work today informed by this experience having come up through, you know, independent media like this? Sure. And, you know, there are a lot of uh, fantastic journalists who came out of the indie media movement. Uh, Shane Bauer, for example, who's at Mother Jones, you know, award-winning journalist, uh, used to write for Indie Bay um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm in Oakland. Um, and so uh, it is absolutely informed my work in terms of uh, understanding the voices from the communities that are being harmed, that grassroots voices, um, you know, need to be put front and center as much as possible. And that that's a narrative uh, that can be the driving narrative of a story. Um, and also having a kind of embedded critique of corporate power um, and of, uh, you know, the agendas of the corporations that I'm writing about, um, you know, are not going to be aligning with the people who are using the tools that they're putting out there. And so as I report on platforms like Facebook or, or YouTube, I, I have a very uh, deep understanding and experiential understanding of how, uh, you know, we often use media tools or, or, or we depend on media companies, um, despite the fact that they're not necessarily serving our interest. And it's, it's definitely been a, a, a locus of my reporting. 
and you're allowed to follow through with that as as someone who who reports for you know what is effectively a corporate outlet if not yeah. uh, something on on the size of of a New York Times or an NBC uh yes i um can't hide my past and um the fact that uh i used to you know do political organizing or work at nonprofits doesn't uh, change the fact that all of my stories are deeply sourced and reported Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, fact-checked and um, absolutely, uh, you know, getting the the story right is the most important thing. Um, But uh, but it it affects where I look for stories, Mm -hmm. you know, and it affects who I talk to. Um, and, uh, and also the conclusions that I'm drawing, um, from these stories. One of the things I really like about Slate and the Intercept is, is like this too, um, are, are, these are publications that allow for people to do investigative work, but also allow for us to write columns or to draw lessons out of our investigations and hopefully bring readers to a place that they weren't at when they started reading. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to be working at a place that, that, um, has that flexibility uh, in terms of what they allow stylistically for the people who are reporting and writing for them to do. Absolutely. I mean, I've been reading Slate for, I, I feel like, 20 years, if not more. It's been around. It's one of the very first kind of web-first journalism organizations that really has stood the test of time uh, through multiple changes of ownership even <laughs> over, the, yes, over that, over yes, that period. Yes, including Washington Post. So, um, you know, it used to be co- uh, Grant, Graham Holdings used to, you know, had what's the Washington Post. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a good fit, uh, for me, but that doesn't mean I couldn't work for a larger place. People, uh, can change careers <laughs> at any point. And, uh, you know, I think it makes sense to be, uh, reporting from a community, uh, that you're familiar with. Um, it's, it's, I don't think that that necessarily mars my ability or it doesn't mar at all my ability yeah. to, to find stories and, and, and get really important, um, uh, you know, scoops and, and uh, voices out there that, that wouldn't otherwise. Do you think that there that reflects a bit of a shift, a little bit of influence into what we consider oh. in big air quotes mainstream journalism has over this indie, last 20 years? Has indie media invaded the mainstream? Is that, in is some that the little way, yeah. No, I think a lot of people got their start in community media or indie mm-hmm. media and are now mainstream journalists and there's a sprinkling of us, but I don't think it's Invaded is a word that I would even <laughs> but, come but close I mean, to or, using, or, if, or, or influenced, is, even just a little uh, bit of influence I, because of I, editorial judgment, maybe moving with the times. Um, I think more than anything, I don't think that would be as correct to say as it would be say that like uh, the political situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's very hard to be neutral when we're talking about you know migrant detention centers. You know, um, there's not like a both sides conversation to have when we're talking about the rise of neo Nazism. In the United Some States. Some people um, try, April Glazer. I've so, seen it. So, <laughs> Some people still try to have a view from nowhere about Nazis marching in the streets. Sure. and But, but people, I think, uh, across, you know, the most mainstream of all media companies um, are unable to, to, to hold that anymore. And mm-hmm. so I don't think that, you know, I think that comes from the particular moment we're in and, um, and, and things moving accordingly. Well, April Glazer, I think we've gone on quite a journey. I thank you for joining us today. Uh, (laughs) You're a journalist at Slate covering technology, and you wrote an article about indie media, Another Network is Possible, which people can read at Logic Magazine. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Yeah, it's always great to talk to LPFM folks, radio people, and uh, folks that know about indie media. It's a joy. Thank you so much. Have a good one. 
Thanks again to April Glazer for that interview. You can find a link to her article, Another Network is Possible, at our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. We also have got links to several other reflections and roundups of people looking back at that momentous occasion on November 30th of 1999 and the protests in Seattle against the WTO. On behalf of myself and Eric Klein, thanks for spending another hour with us.